0: We once again have the privilege of studying the Word of God and learning more about our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, have them open in front of you. We're gonna be heading to Mark chapter 12 today. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time. And what is clear is that these leaders are doing everything they can to trap Jesus and bring him to destruction. Yet at each move, Jesus brings a new level of wisdom a new level of understanding that really makes these religious leaders look a bit foolish in their attempts. Last week we saw how Jesus dealt with two traps that were set for him and that he showed in his responses that Jesus had an elevated level of wisdom beyond these religious leaders and what we learned is that there is nobody or nothing compared to the all-knowing and all-powerful Jesus. As we move into this week's passage, we consider one of the two greats. The second is the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and the first is, what we're going to be looking at in Mark 12, is the Great Commandment or the Greatest Commandment. As we walk through the passage, I want you to see a very simple truth. To have a right relationship with one another we must first have a right relationship with God. To have a right relationship with one another, we must first have a right relationship with God. Conversely, a right relationship with God will be evidenced in our relationship with one another. Let me just be really explicit of what I'm trying to say here. If your relationships amongst one another in the family of God quite literally stink, then what is rotten is your relationship with God. If your relationships with one another stink and and really produce no good fruit, then your relationship with God needs to be reconsidered, for it is likely that that is what is rotten behind the scenes. For a rotten relationship with God tarnishes everything. Yet a right relationship with God is one that brings peace and humility and love and is evidenced out in how we treat others. And so as we go through the greatest commandment, I'll be honest, this is going to strike a chord with many of us as we learn what it means to love God and love others and learn what it means that we are so often off the mark. So we're going to be jumping right into our passage and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12 and from verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now we've had a political question from a Herodian, we've had a theological question from a Sadducee, and now we have a biblical question from a scribe who was essentially a legal expert of the time. However, in Matthew 22 and his account, we learn that the scribe really was sent by the Pharisees. So in the background, these religious leaders are still trying to pull the strings and still trying to trap Jesus. Yet notice the scribe is different from the others. He was impressed with the answers of Jesus, recognizing his wisdom and his understanding that flowed in his responses to the questions he had received. This feels less like a trap, and more like an inquisitive question that indirectly may trap Jesus, but that is not the aim of the scribe. The question, which is the most important commandment? Now, yes, we have 10 commandments in Exodus 20. We've recently covered them in our daily reading program. However, our Old Testament contains 613 do's and don'ts commands. There are 248 positive commands or the do's and there are 365 negative commands, the don'ts. So when asking this question, what the scribe is asking is which one of all of these commandments is the most important one to keep? You see, the Pharisees liked to expand and add in rules and regulations. They loved to have control over the people, but they also loved to try and find out how the law could be represented in a succinct postcard-worthy sentence because then they could bring that to every conversation and if someone hadn't obeyed that command, then they were deemed as lawless and breaking the law. The question is a real issue of the time. There were some who felt that they could determine the most important command and then they could keep on keeping that command and the rest really didn't really matter. It was Augustine who explained this view when he said, love God and do what you like. In modern days, this view is really expressed in liberal churches. If you love God, then that's all that matters. Everything else is fair game. This was the view that ultimately one law being kept means that everything else is not that important. Yet there was another view that every single command should be religiously kept. To break one was to break them all and therefore it was a dangerous and serious offence. Those that held this view thought it was dangerous to even discuss what the greatest commandment was because you were already beginning to err against the commands of God. Again, in the modern day, this would probably be expressed in legalistic churches, the commands that are kept with the strictest literal interpretation. And so this is a real issue of the time. This is a real inquiry. Which side does Jesus come on? Is he liberal? Is he legalistic? And so what we learn in the response of Jesus in a few moments in the coming verses is that both of these views, the liberal and the legalistic, are both wrong. The liberal and the legalistic individuals are the two extremes and Jesus will bring the conservative, God-honouring view in between these two extremes. So let's head into verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus replies by quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and from verse 4 and let's turn there because I want you to see the importance of Jesus using the Old Testament and not just taking my word for it. So Deuteronomy 6 and from verse 4, Hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. And you'll see this is a a direct quote that Jesus gives here. These verses are known as the creed of Judaism, commonly called the Shema or the Shema, which means to hear, coming from the, the first words of these verses, hear, O Israel. Now, the Shema would be recited at the beginning of every synagogue service, reminding those present that there is only one God, and that is the God who is the Most High. It would be contained in leather boxes that devout Jews would wear on their foreheads and on their wrists so that every time they prayed, they were reminded of a holy God. And further to this, the Shema would be placed in boxes and attached to the doors of Jewish homes. A reminder that God is still God in your going out and your coming in. So as Jesus quotes these Old Testament passages, he's quoting really the very foundation of the Jewish religion, of these religious leaders that are coming to him. Now, before delving into the words themselves, every Jew would have expressed the Shema as one of the most important commands of scripture. So to some extent, it was unlikely that anyone would have been surprised by this answer. So what does the command actually mean? If if Jesus is using it and it's not really a surprise, why is he using it and what does it mean? Well, have you noticed that we've used the word love in our society quite a lot? In fact, we use it for just about anything. i give you an example. I love to walk the hills of Scotland and look across the beautiful scenery and yes, of course, Scottish people are always homesick for that wonderful scenery that is the Scottish hills. And I'll say that I love walking those hills. I love seeing that scenery. But clearly the love of hill walking cannot be compared to the same love that I would have for my wife or my children. Our society uses the word love so often that it begins to lose its meaning somehow in our society the love of hill walking and the love of our wife and children use the same term that is why it's so helpful that this command that Jesus gives is yes to love God but there is additional information of how we are to love him with all our heart soul mind and strength Let's just dial in a little bit further. The word used for heart is the Hebrew word libab, which means the inner man, the inner seat of emotions. It speaks of internal affections and adoration for another. It situates right at your core. So to love God with all our hearts is to say that our very core, our inner affections, everything within our inner man, inner woman is for God. That is the inner love to God. Now, interestingly, the word used for soul in Hebrew is nephesh, which translates to a living being, a breathing creature, a soul. It refers to the breath of God that was used to bring Adam to life. In other words, to love God with our soul is to love God with our very lives. A simpler way to say it is to love God with all that we are, our entire being. To dedicate our very breaths to God and to surrender our lives to Him is the act of loving God. And then in our Deuteronomy passage, it only refers to might, yet Jesus splits this into mind and strength. Deuteronomy says with all your might, Jesus says with all your mind and strength and the word mind in the Greek is dionia which refers to our way of thinking, our way of feeling, we're to love God with our thoughts, with our knowledge, with our understanding, with our intelligence. Now, you take these three, heart, soul, and mind, and realize it takes strength to love God in this way. To each day to choose to actively pursue God with our entire being needs determination, dedication, discipline, strength to do so. And so the religious leaders aren't surprised by this answer. And it would have been likely given as their answer as the greatest commandment but what is clear is they probably just don't grasp the depth of the love of God. It's like our current society, they're saying love God almost flippantly, where Jesus is taking it to a new level, a deep level, one that will take determination and dedication to love God in. What was surprising is what Jesus said next, verse 31. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. To the first commandment, Jesus now adds a second commandment. And once again, he goes back to the Old Testament. Isn't this interesting that Jesus is going back to the Old Testament, really to develop these new meanings in scripture. So we go to Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In its original context in Leviticus, this verse reflects the relationship between Jew and Jew. Yet Jesus doesn't assert this qualification onto the command in the New Testament. Not only is it now added to love God, but it's a hint to love others, non-Jews, Gentiles, as you love yourself, essentially treat others as well as you treat yourself. This was not just about the Jewish family. This was now expanding out to loving all people. In his answer, Jesus really is breathing new life and new meaning into these Old Testament commandments. And it's important to see that no rabbi had ever put these two commands together and made them one. Essentially, Jesus was teaching that loving God will be evidenced in your love for others. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then that will overflow in your attitude toward others. Equally, to love those who are not your people, individuals to this point you have hated, well, that will speak of a special love, one that doesn't come from man or a simple obedience to a commandment, but a love that comes from God. Jesus boldly declares that there are no other commandments like these two. To love God is to keep all of his commands. To love others is to show that you love God and that your love of God transcends above all else. Jesus has strengthened every aspect of the Old Testament and then shown great focus on these two commands. Let's see how the scribe responds in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbour as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe flat out agrees with Jesus And the Pharisees must have been astonished at this point. They sent in this great legal mind to trap Jesus and he comes back in complete agreement with this, in their view, heretic. Yes, he repeats the answers back that Jesus has given him in his own words, but just see what he's saying here back to the religious leaders. Because the three great pillars of Judaism were the law, the temple, and the election or the choice of Israel. Jesus has declared that the law is fulfilled in the act of love and the scribe recognizes that this act of love is more important and of more value than burnt offerings and physical sacrificial systems. Essentially, not only is he agreeing with Jesus, but now he is taking down the pharisaical view that the sacrificial system is more important than this love that Jesus talks about. Hosea speaks of it in Hosea 6.6, "'For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Loving God with our entire being is of greater significance than empty sacrifice. It goes beyond that ritual obedience of rule keeping and sacrificial systems. So can you imagine the the pharisaical astonishment here that they have tried to trap with a Herodian, they've tried to trap with a Sadducee, they've tried to trap with a scribe and now he is beginning to convince people of his arguments. These traps are not working. They are once again made to look foolish. Back to Jesus in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The scribe got it, and because he did, Nobody dared ask another question. Jesus is truly captivating and time with him has power to transform the heart and the mind, the understanding, the knowledge that you have. However, I do want to give a note of caution here. Nothing is said that the scribe actually comes to Jesus and surrenders to him. He's called by Jesus to come to him in faith. He is so close. He just needs to make that final step, but nothing is recorded to suggest that he did make that step. Now, we don't know if he did or he didn't, but it's a reminder that you can be close to Jesus. You can even understand him. You can even have an intellectual level of understanding yet not have salvation from your sin. To be truly saved, we are to fully surrender our lives to Jesus and seek his forgiveness for our sin. We're to repent from our sin and turn our lives over to him. And if that hasn't been done and you are listening and watching to this sermon and you have yet to make that step, I want to be very clear, you are still not a Christian. You are still lost. You're still under the guilt and punishment of your sin. And now is the moment to deal with that. Don't be like the scribe who walks away away and is so close yet so far away, be one that is faithful to Jesus and surrender to him now. Now it might be sensible to on the surface finish here and our passage seems to come to a a natural close here and we can move on to some application But the next few verses, although on the surface seem to jar, bring an even deeper meaning to this interaction between Jesus and the leaders. And so we won't stop here. In fact, we'll go into verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Jesus has been asked three questions and he has answered each. Now the tables are turned and it's time for Jesus to ask a question of his own. How can it be said that Christ, the Christ, is the son of David? You see, it was widely agreed that the Christ, or in Hebrew, the Messiah, would be the son of King David, that great king of Israel in the Old Testament. The issue is that many took this in the strictest of senses. They only considered the physical elements here, the physical bloodline from King David. So Jesus already knowing that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, is not necessarily trying to reveal himself to the religious leaders, rather he's trying to reveal to the religious leaders their lack of understanding of who the Messiah is, the very person before them, verse 36. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 and verse one. And before going there, again, I want you to see, quote, one, Old Testament, quote, two, Old Testament, quote, three, Old Testament. Jesus always goes back to the Old Testament to bring foundation to what he is teaching. And so we as Christians need to remember we can't just be New Testament Christians. Of course, we are with Jesus Christ, but we need to be whole scripture Christians. We need to recognise from Genesis to Revelation it's God's word and each part has a weight to it. Each part is important and so with that we go to Psalm 110 verse 1 where Jesus quotes from, the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is showing that the leaders only look to the Messiah in a physical manner, the son of David. Yet David calls him Lord Meaning that to David, it was more than physical elements to the Lord, there was a spiritual element. And the leaders here in the New Testament have tried to trap Jesus and tried to show that everything about him physically is wrong and therefore they need to destroy him. Yet their biggest failure was not to go to a spiritual level. Essentially, Jesus is asking, do you even know who the Messiah will be? Do you even know the Christ? Do you have any clue who you are dealing with on a spiritual level? And from their responses, it is clear the leaders leaders are entirely oblivious to their sin. You see, they're so busy trying to trap the human part of Jesus so that they can have their elevated sense of worth that they've completely missed the spiritual answers he gives and the clear indication that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who should be celebrated. Having looked at the great commands and the response of Jesus, how are we gonna apply this to our own lives now? Remember, the word of God is living and active. It's not meant solely for academic purposes. It is meant to change our lives. It is meant to cut the sin out of us. It is to nurture our faith in Christ. It is to transform our very hearts, our souls, our minds. So how is this passage going to transform us this week? Here are just a few things to consider as we head into a new week with our Lord and Saviour. First one, not surprisingly, love God, love God. I want to get real today, we don't really love God, not in the way that Jesus declares in this greatest commandment. Sure, we can come to Christ and feel that elation of loving Christ and knowing that he is our saviour and he has died for us and we surrender our lives to him. But when we live this Christian life, we don't truly love God as Jesus has described. And I'm guessing for some of you, I'm already beginning to offend you and beginning to frustrate you. But just honestly, look at your life. Do you really love God with your inner being, with your affections that are entirely for him? Do you really love God with your life, with your very breath that you breathe? Do you really love God with every thought and with every part of your understanding? Do you really love God with all your strength, determination and discipline in your life? Do you adore God with every minute of every day? Let's not kid ourselves, we we don't love God like this because things creep into our life that take our heart's affections, the holiday that we dream of, the perfect family life we want, the popularity we wish for. Our words are used to defend sinful behaviours and to bring down others and discourage others. We even blaspheme against God as we twist his word in this modern society. Our minds are not used to delve deeper into God's word. They're used to fight our corners and to show who is right and who is more important. Our strength is used to pursue our own desires, pushing through so that we can attain what we want or what others want. For so many of us, What we have become is apathetic, lukewarm and dispassionate followers of Jesus. And if you're not convinced of this, just look at how you spend your money, your time, your energy. Does it reflect a complete, whole life devotion and surrendering to God? A devotion that Peter was crucified, a devotion that the disciples took beatings for, a devotion that saw early believers sentenced to death for declaring their faith. A devotion that saw countless Christians in countries all around the world for centuries to be brutally murdered because they refused to speak ill of Jesus. Do you have that devotion and love for God? I don't say this to make you feel guilty. I say it to wake you up from your apathy. John Stott said, we should not ask what is wrong with the world for that diagnosis has already been given. Rather, we should ask, What has happened to the salt and light? Friends, we need to rediscover our love for God, our whole life devotion to him. Are you ready to give your life and in its entirety to God? There are some who've been Christians for decades who are yet to do this, who still live for this world and are yet to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. Friends, let us love God as Paul describes his love for the Lord in Philippians three and from verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Friends, we are to love God and we need to wake up from our apathy, wake up from our slumber and our lukewarmness and love God with our entire being. The second application, again, not surprisingly, is we are to love others were to love others. When you love God entirely, you're then able to love others. If you're finding it difficult to love others, go back to your relationship with God and recognise that no Christian can harbour hatred for another. For love doesn't flow from convenience or a nice feeling. It flows from the love that we have for God, the love that God has for us in showing us and sending us Jesus to die for our sins so that we might have a right relationship with God. It's upon this foundational love that we can then love others. Now, in preparing this message, I had to take a step back for a day because it dawned on me. Jesus wasn't talking about loving the people that we'd like. Remember, that was the command in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus that we were to love Jew and Jew. But this was going further with Jesus. This was to love others, ultimately, to love our enemies. He was talking about loving the people that annoy you, that bug you, that frustrate you, and that seek your demise. Now, sadly, as a pastor, I have had plenty of these people over the years these are the people that at every step of ministry have sought to attack and sometimes they've succeeded in derailing a ministry or causing harm with their words and here is the difficult part i realized i am called by jesus to love these individuals to think the best of them to pray for them to seek their hearts to be for jesus and to seek for the lord to bless them now let's be clear These individuals don't deserve my love. However, being devoted to God and his word, I know that 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. I'm to love those who hate me and wish me ill because I once hated Jesus, yet he loved me to the point of death. Friends, this is what it means to love others, to seek to love those that don't deserve our love. To practice what I preach, uh, let me say this to those listening and watching who simply don't like me, who struggle with my ministry, who at every corner have sought to bring it down, to those who have spoken ill, to those who have spread rumours, to those who have repeatedly punched me emotionally, to those who one moment encourage and the next take a swipe, to those who frankly don't deserve my love. I say to those people, by the power of Jesus and with the love that he has shown me, I love you. I want the best for you. I want King Jesus to bless you abundantly. I pray that your hearts will be refreshed and renewed. I pray that the Lord will guide you to serve him. And as my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I rejoice in that the Lord will do things in your lives. Friends, we need to humbly come before King Jesus and recognise there are many that don't deserve our love. But through the power and faith in Jesus, we can give that love knowing that Jesus is in control, knowing that Jesus is Lord and Savior and knowing that Jesus can transform hearts. Third and finally, let me say this, we need to get serious and commit. We need to get serious and commit. A a quick word really to those who are like the scribes who know Jesus intellectually, even agree with the Bible, you have not made that commitment. It is time to get serious. Now is the moment to say, I'm all in. Now is the moment to stop being a fence sitter and to fully surrender to King Jesus. Now is the moment to allow Jesus to dwell in your heart, soul, and mind. Now is the time to enter the kingdom of God and find peace. The Bible tells us that we are wicked in our sin. We cannot do anything to save ourselves from the punishment we deserve. Yet Jesus willingly went to the cross when he took all of our sin, past, present and future and nailed it to the cross. He took the punishment that was deserved for you and me and in his death and in this punishment, the wrath of God was poured out. Yet three days later, he rises victoriously and now is the living Lord Jesus that we find our hope and our salvation in. We can come to him now in humility, repent, say sorry, with our deep conviction of our sin and we can seek forgiveness in Jesus because he is faithful to forgive our sins. So we have one message for the fence sitters. Get serious today. Commit to Jesus. Become a Christian. Become a follower of Jesus and do it right now. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you for Jesus. We praise you for this command to love God and love others. Father, help us know our relationship with God is on sure footing before we seek to love others. Father, we pray that we would grow in faith, grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, grow in our love for God. And Father, as we do that, we pray that it outworks, that it's evidenced in our love towards others. Father, to those who hate us, to those who have done wrong against us, to those who don't deserve our love, Father, we pray that you help us love them for Christ loved us even when we were sinners. He loved us first. And so, Father, we pray that we would learn to love others, that we would humble ourselves before Jesus. We would treat no one with hatred, no one with dislike, no one with frustration, and instead we would let the love of Jesus flow through us. Father, we pray for the fence sitters, who are yet to commit to you, who are yet to be all in for Jesus. Father, we pray right now you would convict their hearts and souls, that they would come to know you as personal Lord and Saviour. And Father, give them courage to to reach out and let us know so that we can pray for them, that we can welcome them into the kingdom of God and to the church here at Lincoln Baptist. And Father, we pray this week that your word would be living and active in our lives, that we would be different people this week, that we would live differently, that we would behave differently, that we would think differently, that we would feel differently, that we would know differently as we live out the great command this week. So Father, we pray this in the precious and glorious name of Jesus. Amen.